And next up, I'm going to bring up our uh, founder and CEO, Richard Wilson. Thank you so much, everybody. Great. We'd like to invite up our final panelist to the stage. It's going to be our wealth management and multifamily office discussion panel. As they're coming up, I've got a quick few notes. I love the comment about having a uh, zero management fee, you know, uh, in a small, maybe 5 10% uh, profit fee to earn the trust of an investor. If you're getting started, you have to start somewhere. And having industry standard fees when you're a new firm is a tough sell. Also, uh, I like the comment about um, the, the discussion around structures in general. What I find is that so many people have not spent much time having a unique structure in the marketplace compared to their competitors. It just makes you more aligned. It doesn't have to be less fees. It should just be less fees when the investor makes no money or no fees when the investor doesn't make money. Uh, versus charging them fees all of the time. Uh, the other thing I'd like to mention is that the emerging manager panel, uh, maybe next time around we can talk even more about JVing and co-GPing with large investment managers in your space as a strategy to build credibility and get momentum, because I see people doing that here in the family office club, as I mentioned earlier today. And also as an emerging manager, I just think you're always being evaluated and people want to work with people that are like themselves. So uh, that you know, like to do similar things is an obvious thing, but just the way that you talk, the way you hold yourself, what you enjoy doing in your free time, uh, you know, and I find that investors turn off immediately when they find that someone has a different set of rules that they're living by in the world or a different uh, definition of integrity or morals, et cetera. They just immediately will turn off working with somebody. So I think that's just important to be hyper aware of. So uh, let's start this next panel, our last panel, uh, with Jim. And let's go down the line just a quick uh, one or two minute uh, introduction on your daily perspective, and then we'll we'll start the questions. So my daily perspective relates to senior living communities, but as this is the title, of this is a multi-multi-family uh, uh, office perspectives, right? Uh, and so wealth I, management firms. And too. wealth yep. management. Well, so when I was a venture capitalist way back in the day, I I created some pretty good wealth for some. Uh, uh, family offices, so I can have that perspective. I, the last uh, comments about uh, cryptocurrencies, if I was advising anybody talking to a family office or a wealth manager, I'd spend a lot more time talking about senior living facilities than I would cryptocurrencies. Uh, the quantum computer has uh, uh, an impact on that, and that's a different subject. But um, so what about uh, in, your, in, your, in your private equity, you know, VC, senior living experience, uh, how many different times have you raised capital from wealth management firms, multifamily offices, uh, how many different types of... Uh, that's a really good question. There? Maybe three times in the venture capital world, uh, um, once in the private equity world, and um, in the senior living space, uh, none from family offices because the scale of what we're doing is beyond most family offices, so in all honesty, but I wanted to talk about the senior living sector to help inform people. Sure, sure. And you mentioned earlier that you're doing more international work, which is yeah. really one of the questions we had earlier. Great. Uh, Molly? Yeah, as I stated earlier, we help, um, we work along with private equity firms and venture capitalists partnering with them to help scale business owners in, uh, in a very in a way that will not only help them scale their business, but also reduce their time in doing so and give them more free time to really achieve all that's important to them. And, it, and it, a real example of this um, happened to me a couple weeks ago. I had a client that we sold off about a year ago because they weren't taking active advice. And they owned a business, it was a family business, and um, got sh in the newspaper found him, his wife, his two kids, and his three dogs all 
passed away with, a, with um, a carbon monoxide. And the reason why this is so important is because they didn't set up those streamlines, they didn't set up a succession plan, they didn't have any exits for them. Basically that business that they built up, it was a multi-million dollar business, uh, it was basically worth nothing because it was buried with him. And so having somebody in there to be able to um, set up those revenue silos, be, be able to have that succession plan. So if an emergency happened, I like to call it a CYP plan, the crap your pants plan. You know, in case something happens and you literally do that, you can have the next person in line in charge to be able to take over. Um, and so that's really what, what we do. Uh, Bo? Yeah, with regards to working with family offices and, and uh, individual uh, management groups, uh, I think one of the benefits to groups like ours and what I think is an opportunity for family offices is you can actually look to find more subject matter expertise or subject matter experts in certain areas uh, that are starting to develop, whether it's people in real estate or people in uh, oil and gas or people in early stage technologies. There are more and more subject matter experts for the silos and the asset classes that you're looking for. And that's the way we've approached uh, working with wealthy family offices is that we present angel investing and early stage technology as an asset class. That's all it is. And to view it accordingly. And of course to proportionalize your investments into those assets accordingly because they are higher risk. Yes, they're higher return, but they're much higher risk. So in, in, in taking that approach and working with this type of audience, again, we try to just educate the and approach it just like another asset class, but to proportion your at your allocations according to the risk that you're going to be associating with, and, and that resonate or seems to resonate with people. Sure, sure. And in, uh, Nick, in your case in Canada, what's been your experience with how open wealth management firms are of uh, working with real estate investment firms, or, and and what's been the the background experience on that and progress in your firm? Yeah. Um, so we on button. It might be off. That's, that was the problem earlier. Maybe not. There we go. Um, so uh, with our uh, with our firm, we've worked with a number of family offices on uh, joint venture deals and and um, development opportunities that were just a little bit too big for us to bite off on our own. So we've got some experience in that phase uh, or in that space. Um, we haven't uh, spent a lot of time raising capital through uh, wealth management firms, but mostly through relationships. Um, but uh, the time that we have spent, uh, everybody has real estate in their portfolio. So uh, what it generally boils down to is, uh, um, I guess, an alignment of what our business model is with what the wealth management firm's uh, philosophies are and how they deploy their um, you know, clients' capital. Sure. So uh, Molly, in your experience, you know, seven years running your wealth management firm, uh, what is the best way for somebody here who's been raising capital from private investors directly to take Andres' advice of going to the advisor that they've known and trusted for a decade and build their trust and build a genuine relationship and show their niche expertise when uh, most wealth management firms are well known, probably get approached by a lot of professionals. You know, what would get your attention and what advice do you have for those here in the room that want to build their you know, roster of wealth management clients? Well, as far as for us working with different strategic partners uh, as such, uh, we are looking for somebody that is entrepreneurially minded, wants to grow, and really truly wants that partnership. Um, because a lot of times what we're doing is 
we're almost treating them as a client. We're scaling their, their business. We're looking at how can we add another 10, 20, 40% to their bottom line. Normally it's significantly more, but we always, it's typically 20%. And so for us, it's more of an interview process. You know, we're constantly bombarded with a lot of people that want to partner with us because of our ability to help them not only scale our clients and their investments of what they're doing, but also for, the, for themselves. Um, and so having that economic glue and being open-minded to that, um, you know, it may not be a revenue share. It may just being able to help each other be more successful that's kind of the, the underlying factor that we look at because, you know, the, the referral system is, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine is, you know, that, that's like maybe in the 80s, but uh, in today's world, economic glue is kind of what makes things extra sticky. Sure, sure. Um, and then, uh, Bo, in your case, I imagine that some of your investors have a CPA that they've trusted for, you know, decades that they might pass some materials by or they might need to be on a due diligence phone call or maybe even a wealth advisor. Can you talk about those interactions and um, different maybe changes you've made to your strategy and communicating with those folks over time? Sure. In a lot of cases, the, the CPA or the tax attorney, whoever it happens to be, is the trusted advisor, but they don't know any more about the deal than probably one of the investor's children does. Probably less, actually, if it's a technology deal. And so the key in that case is because that's an influencer, just like Molly was saying, you're dealing with influencers. Those, because the CPA is going to be the influencer or the tax attorney is the influencer, you have to get them comfortable with whoever your subject matter expertise is or ex expert is that's conveying the knowledge because, frankly, they're not going to know any more probably if it's blockchain or in artificial intelligence or whatever it happens to be. They're probably not going to know more than, than the investor is. But getting them comfortable, again, that's getting back to what we've talked about all day, building relationships, being relatable being open and honest and being transparent with whoever the, uh, the CPA or the expert is or the influencer is, as well as with the investor, and, and not trying, again, just being as open and transparent as you can and trying to be committed to building a long-term relationship. Because if it's perceived that this is a one-off, kind of fly-by-night type situation where you just want the one-time deal, you're going to get shut down and you're not going to get anything out of that. So it's got to be, particularly if you're dealing with a third party, a commitment to uh, a really a longer-term relationship, which may not yield fruit immediately, but ultimately can. Sure. And there's uh, investor clubs, whether angel investor clubs or medical professionals, et cetera, uh, all over the country. Usually they have the terms on the website. You have to fill out a form and just hope that somebody on planet Earth reads it eventually and you don't hear back or you just get a polite decline template letter. So besides reading someone's website and submitting the form, I mean, what advice do you have for someone here in the room who's maybe you know, based in Austin with an operating business looking to raise capital or based somewhere else in a different niche, uh, how, do, how can you get through that process besides the obvious of going to the website and seeing, seeing if you meet the criteria? We need to find somebody like Richard Wilson who reads every email and responds to everything right. as a process system. But short of that, uh, if you're in a city, Austin, will, Austin won't be hard. Dallas probably won't be hard because you can find those organizations where they do have things and you can reach out and, and you'll have to hit a number of people There'll be, again, in Austin, in here too, you, there'll be pitch competitions. You can go through, frankly, in most big metropolitan areas now, there'll be at the Chamber of Commerce some type of technology or entrepreneurship committee where you can do pitch, uh, pitch reviews and have those type of, uh, get that type of feedback that'll help you and ultimately get to where you want to go. 
Again, it's all about relationships and refining what you're providing uh, in a way that's going to be received. And if you don't know that, this is the best. I mean, come and ask me. I'll be glad to help whoever needs it. It's interesting. Most angel investor clubs I see, probably like 35, 40% of the room are real estate professionals. Most angel groups I see are focused on operating businesses, not in real estate. Yet on the same balance sheets of those angel investors, they do invest in real estate. It's just not the purpose of the angel investor club. So one, why is that? Why don't they have 30% of the ideas coming through be real estate ideas? Or maybe I'm off the mark and a lot of them do. Uh, or why do you think there aren't more angel investor uh, real estate clubs out there since so many of them are focused on operating businesses? Is that me? Yeah. Me? Well, I think yeah, real estate folks, again, they're, I'm not a real estate person, so you'll tell me, you guys are kind of lone rangers to some degree. And you like doing things. It, it's just not something that seems conducive to having a team of chefs. You get one cook, maybe one or two cooks, and that's about it. Whereas with, with an angel investing component with technology, you're going to have the technology expert who probably doesn't do sales very well. And you're going to have to have someone who can sell it. Then you have to have an operating component. There's just, there are more cogs in the machine, whereas for real estate, you typically can have, again, correct me if I'm wrong, one or two chiefs or captains that can drive the ship, take care of most of what needs to be done, and they probably don't want any other, uh, any other captains in the cockpit, so to speak. I think Jim would like to partially correct you here. So okay. let uh, Jim well, take the mic. It's not so much a correction. There's just different segments of okay. real estate. Senior living communities are operating businesses. Okay. Each community might employ 40 or 50 people delivering uh, quality care to the residents in various levels of care, depending on the uh, nature of their, their needs. So it's one of the few sectors, it's I guess a little bit like a hotel, but uh, in the case, in the senior living community case, it's, it's healthcare related, need-based, and so it's not like a, a manager sitting in an apartment building or an industrial building or something. It's you're delivering active care every day, interfacing with residents, and uh, and th so the value systems of who those leaders are of those communities and the and the company that has multiple communities is very important. And so the value systems that you find great leaders in uh, corporate world or venture capital world, which was what we did in the old days, same value systems to find great leaders to be qu top quartile operators and managers of these kind of facilities. So it's a different segment. So it's not correcting you, it's just an addendum. So. And I know that uh, there's some family office club members that have connected with a few wealth management firms. And uh, you know, like Fatty was here on stage earlier, I believe they've done very well, raised a couple hundred million dollars through a single wealth management firm relationship, for example. Uh, so I think that uh, taking the time to build the types of relationships with an investor club or a wealth management firm can pay big dividends. And in your case, Nick, um, what's been your experience in Canada on where you've had the highest ROI of finding aligned investors? Was it within an investor club or an, an angel group like Bose? Was it within a wealth management firm uh, like Molly's or? Uh, we've been uh, most successful, I think, in leveraging relationships where uh, we'll have a relationship with uh, a family office that is aligned with our values, and they'll introduce us to other ones who then introduce, you know, and it becomes a bit of a network. So it's, um, and built over time. So uh, none of this stuff happens very quickly because trust takes a long time to build. Um, 
you have to do what you say a whole bunch of times before somebody actually believes that you're going to do what you say the next time. Uh, so for us, it's really been a process of steadily building that trust. Um, we're now a second generation business and, uh, and being able to move that forward. So I think be patient is, is probably the biggest piece of that where you got to just continually go back and continually keep uh, talking because timing is also an issue where you could talk to somebody who's perfectly aligned with you. The timing's bad for you and often these deals, you know, they come and go. Uh, and a deal that's great for that person at one point in time isn't isn't later. So, um, yeah, it's sure. it's about being in the game, being consistent, keeping those relationships alive. Sure, makes sense. Uh, Jim, since uh, senior living is such a operationally intensive type of real estate, but I also think people are somewhat familiar with it, like apartment buildings, like self storage, more so than data centers or warehouses, for example. Um, what would be your suggestion for due diligence approaches or you know, cautionary tales or a, a strategies to take for a, a family office that wants to conduct due diligence? Maybe they're looking at two senior living deals right now uh, where they live. Um, what would you say is some, kind of the things to look at first or really make sure you don't miss while conducting due diligence? Well, uh, real estate is local. They'll all have a market study. But the really, really important thing is the operator or the management team. At each one of the facilities, there'll be an executive director and uh, other folks down. But the, the majority of the, uh, the people uh, are going to be lower wage. And so it takes really talented senior management to get the message and have everybody rolling in the same direction. So the operator in the senior living space is the tail that wags a dog. It's all about them. So you want to have a top quality operator that's done many, many uh, communities in the past. Each one of ours uh, that we have agreements with have done dozens of communities, so we're spread geographically. But uh, the operator is, is by f it's, it's number one, two, three, and four of what they should do to do due diligence. And then the market study, it's local, but you know, People can read market studies pretty well and understand whether there's demand or what it is, but it's, it's really the, the values and the, uh, the vision and the leadership of the um, senior management. Sure. And so, uh, Molly, in your case, uh, you're working with business owners that might be second generation or might just be a successful first generation business owner, right? Um, so I think many people here in the room have raised capital from business owners. It might be a law firm partner, maybe an operating business individual that's profiting seven figures a year and looking to put their money to work for them now. So what have you learned the hard way about attracting those business owner clients? And what are you finding in common among your clients that's almost always the case that you could share here with the audience? Sure, that's a great question. So um, how we're attracting um, those type of clients is by doing things like this. We speak all across the country, uh, really just being a thought leader. Uh, we're constantly putting content out there on, uh, we're posting two or three times a day on social media with our own content and also curating. We underwrite a lot of research uh, to be able to constantly have that presence of mind be seen as the expert within our particular realm. So the more that you can do things like that, um, everybody wants to be a thought leader, but no one really has the time to do so. So what we have really perfected is the ability to, to do those things. So we can book a stage uh, a week by, with our systems and just by using an hour, just an hour a week. Um, 
you know, for us to do postings and all about that leadership, it really only takes us an additional couple hours for us to write articles, um, about 30 minutes. Uh, so being able to have the efficiencies in the systems and the team to be able to do something like that is absolutely imperative. Um, so that's one way is uh, thought leadership. Uh, we also use strategic partners and um, our, our clients are also obviously a wonderful resource for us for producing additional clients. Um, there was a second part of your question. Uh, what's the common thing that most of them are wanting that you're, you're able to serve or like a golden thread that you could share with the audience about um, you know, their most common request or pain points, et cetera? Uh, most of them just, uh, they, you know, they built this complex business, right? And they're the ones that are trying to, you know, the, the common issue with all of them is that they're the ones that are making the decisions, are trying to source um, all the advice and then become the expert to then be able to make the right decisions. So they, you know, on average, <laughs> go to 10 different advisors, get 10 different answers, and then they are absolutely confused, so they just don't do it because it's just too complex. And so what we've done is really simplify that process through our virtual family office. And so all they have to do when they're working with us is be able to just make that decision because as a business owner, you really only have two jobs that you should only be focused on as well as the rest of your team. That's make money and do things that are making the money. Anything else needs to have a system, needs to be delegated, and we, what we do is really alleviate all those issues so that's all they're really doing. Great. Yeah, you reminded me of uh, three or four little things. So the first one is that I think that um, everyone's industry here is evolving to a niche focus. So if you're a wealth manager, you get helped by evolving to focus on a certain type of business owner that's probably of a certain age range and maybe even certain industries. And if you're a multifamily office and you're early on in the trend, you might be growing in assets through referrals. But I think in the future, family offices that are niche focused are going to attract clients faster. And th that's how you get a wedge in and uh, get momentum in the space. So I think all of us, you know, trying to dial things in to be most helpful to a very specific uh, type of investor is something that's worthwhile doing. Also, I, I find that most investment firms and wealth management firms and most people raising capital are about a decade behind on using tools. Lots of times people haven't started using a CRM even now, and people started using those 20 years ago. They weren't very user-friendly until maybe five to seven or 10 years ago, but most people are behind on using social media, for example. Uh, and I get that there's complex regulations, but in every niche, people have figured out a way to, to do it under every type of regulatory structure just about, it seems. So I think the fact that a lot of the people that hold the purse strings at large investment management firms, and they have the gray hair and the, you know, the commercial real estate experience or the wealth management experience of 20, 30 years, and they are the CEO or the president, they don't also have the knowledge of how social media can work, even though we know that's not how you built the practice, that's not what got you momentum, it's not how business is quote unquote done in your space. I think that's gonna start to change over the next decade as uh, people that are now in their late 30s, 40s start to be the president and CEO of sizable firms. And then that's going to be something that's going to make the adoption of all this stuff that you're saying much more prevalent, uh, Molly. So right now is a great time to kind of be moving forward with that. And um, I always like to quote Mona Marcard at CapitalCon. Uh, she said that thought leadership is the holy grail of attracting clients and attracting investors. And all she does is raise capital for investment firms. And the last thing that you reminded me of was uh, uh, something that Gary Vaynerchuk said recently. He says he loves things that are tedious because he knows that nobody will do them and the value is in there. If the target person that he's trying to work with would get value from it, the harder it is to create that thing, then the better, the better, happier he is about it because he knows that he'll have almost no competition at all. And so I think when you combine those things together, then you get results in the marketplace and you get momentum, uh, I've found. 
So Jim, what about yourself? When putting together uh, deals in the past, uh, what's made the difference in getting deals closed versus just getting a meeting with investors? Because there's a lot of frustration around, even if you do get an email answered, you do get a first meeting, you do meet someone here, you know, it not getting to a close or not fast enough. And so people then have to go a different route. Well, it's, it's personal. Uh, like it's been talked about most of the day, you build relationships with people. Building relationships is the hardest thing in business. Uh, so that's personal, but I, as I thought back uh, in the context of this uh, this panel and today, what's the most one of the most important things? Because I've been on the buy side most of my life, investing in, in things, uh, but now I'm on the uh, sell side, raising a large amount of capital for this project we're involved in. One of the most important things of all uh, is context. So this would be whether it's a small or mid-sized family office or somebody that's trying to raise money from a family office or another investor, it's really important to understand the context of what's going on around you. If you come in and you're telling me something and I, and, and I have the context of what's going on in the United States and I have the context of what's going on around the world, whether it's technology or whether it's what uh, uh, people are looking for in returns, uh, or anything, uh, and I talk to somebody who's coming in to talk to me that doesn't have that, ha hasn't taken the time to understand that context. I just, I know they're uh, poorly informed. I, I heard your panel earlier about internal rates of returns, whatever. I was shocked by some of the comments, 20, 25% or whatever. At the very same time, anybody's talking about 20 or 25%, the big boys in this country you know, the Black Rocks, the Apollos, others in real estate are trying to dumb down the expectations of their limited partners to say that, you know, 13 to 15% might be really good as an equity investor over the next 10 years because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. So you can't come in and if you're talking to somebody who has that context or the European context where he just got back from and you're telling them something and it's just, you just haven't taken the time to understand what's going on. That's not a good thing. So context is important, but you want to build relationships. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like at uh, our event next week, that's pretty much what the whole event about is context. Creating the right context, understanding the context, finding people who get your context, having everything aligned with what you're trying to do long term. So I couldn't agree more uh, with what you just said. I'd like to open it up to questions if we have a couple before we start uh, the cocktails. We have a microphone we can run over to you if you have them. Otherwise, uh, I want to go down the line and just within uh, one minute or less, uh, most important last point that you wanted to perhaps get across during this panel or something that you didn't hear mentioned enough today uh, during the conference that you'd like to kind of emphasize uh, as it relates to wealth management firms, multifamily offices, et cetera. Oh, we had a question in the middle of the room here. Well, uh, we got a microphone coming in just two seconds. Every, I think everyone agrees that we are uh, late in this cycle. Um, as your clients and you personally uh, reallocate your portfolios, uh, what changes do you see? Do you think it's just precautionary or do you think we're really getting closer to the end of the cycle? You want to comment, Jim? Well, uh, I don't think anybody knows, uh, you know, there's got a lot of yappers out there that talk about things. Who knows where we are? 
I, I, I will say that one things one of the things that uh, a lot of smart people study are demographics. Demographics don't lie. So if you're in an area in real estate or in business or whatever, it's going to be impacted by demographics, either positively or negative. Positively, like the senior living sector, but uh, you know, study the demographics. They don't lie. Population, uh, birth rates in the United States, the demographics, uh, that doesn't lie. Um, so that'd be one thing to try to get some sanity out of all the discussion about end of cycle. We we don't worry about end of cycle. We we're going into a super cycle in our category, but you have to worry about. If you're really GDP dependent, um, or where that is, but I, don't, I would be disingenuous if I was going to pontificate on that. I think it's going to last for at least another couple of years. All the smartest people I've met in uh, Europe or uh, other places uh, think that for the most part. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. Sure. You wanna, anyone else want to comment? I, I, I would say that. Uh, Speaking, speaking and hosting 250 events the last 12 years, I see a pattern of starting three years ago. Everyone started to say, hey, I think the market's going to drop off in 12 to 18 months. And they've been saying that same thing for the last three years. You know, the Tax Act coming out, I think, uh, seemed to extend things. Um, and, you know, no one, no one knows what's going to happen, obviously. But when people first started saying that, more often there was a stark difference from a year or two before. People saying we're net sellers. We're not trying to sell everything, but we're selling a little bit more than buying. But then after being wrong for a year or two and the economy keep going and them looking around and the people who weren't so smart trying to reposition made more money because they held on to their assets, then I find that they're just being, you know, uh, caution, you know, cautionary and basically just making sure that whatever they buy, they can hold through a downturn. It's kind of most family offices opinion. Like, let's not get better with someone and, and do a deal that doesn't have the staying power and isn't going to be resilient enough just to hold on until the market recorrects. Uh, most, not all, but obviously, uh, many assets that dipped 2008, 2011, went back up to record highs, you know, same from 2001, et cetera. So I think they have that patient mindset. Anything they allocate to now, they know they might need to hold on to it for 12 to 15 years, uh, perhaps not the four to seven. So just from my perspective, that's what I've seen. If anyone else wants to. I would, I would agree with that. Um, I would say that the biggest mistake that you can make is thinking that there's going to be a recession, so holding on and not doing anything uh, because uh, the market is still moving. And uh, nobody's going to get the timing perfect, regardless of what, you know, how smart they are or what they think they know or anything Someone like that. Someone will, and they'll somebody, think Somebody, somebody, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, you know. <laughs> right, right. So um, I would say just stay in the market, but, but I would echo what Richard said, where it's buy things that you don't mind holding for a decade. And what you can, you know, what history has shown is that there will be market cycles, and they will happen on a roughly decade-long you know, cycle. So, you know, they're, if, you're, if you're willing to hold, you're going to ride a whole cycle. And if you hold longer, you'll ride two cycles. And hold a little longer, you'll ride 10 cycles, right? So it's just be okay to and, hold. And for a private investor in the room, you know, I started out the day talking about playing a unique game. And I think that you can have a different time frame and you can be more agile and more patient than anyone else in the marketplace. Uh, so as a private investor, I think that's really important to keep in mind. But we've had comments on stage before that also you have to realize that if an investment manager or private equity firm crumbles, are you investing in something where you could step in and you could run the asset? Or what would happen if they went out of business and you need to manage and operate? Or do you have someone who's capable of doing that? It's just something to consider when going into deals if you do think that risk is, is on the table. Um, 
Anyone else who wants to comment on that question or a little 30 seconds or one minute comment that you wanted to make sure and fit in and then we'll break for drinks and uh, networking in the back. They just opened the bar one minute ago, but stay with us for another minute or two here and we'll wrap up. I will say one thing because I'm in the great state of Texas here. I wouldn't say this in California. That's where I come from, a lot of crazies. But, um, uh, a lot of yappers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in, I'm in Texas, so I, I don't feel I got run out. How can, you know, how can you uh, think about the investment equation when uh, the politics in this country are so divided and you're going to have socialism, you're going to have free enterprise. One thing I, I do know, and all the best thinkers know, uh, there's only so much, even in this great country like we have, there's only so much oxygen in the one big room. Big government sucks oxygen out of the room, shrinks the private sector. Socialism's never worked, but we have a whole bunch of people running for president that think it does. Anyone else want to start a debate on uh <laughs> We'll, we'll leave that over the over the uh, over the alcohol. I happen to uh, happen to uh, agree with you. I don't want to get into that. So, uh, but anyone else want to make a comment before we round off? Go ahead. You're next. Oh, sure. Um, so, I, you know, I, basically, I just kind of commenting more on to the, the transformation of wealth management and what that really looks like. Um, what really, you know, with what we have done and what we've created is. You know, being able to, we, we t worked with a client, for example, uh, actually a partner. Uh, we took his business. He said, well, I want it to be, I want to get 10% in the next five years of additional revenue. And I, I actually did cartwheels inside because I'm like, oh, that's so easy to be able to do that in like less than a year or in six months. And in 18 months, we took his business from where he was at to getting an additional 60% in revenue. And really the secret sauce that no one's really talking about on how to do that, yes, you can go to the doctor and get the medicine to treat your symptoms, but you know, unless you actually deal with the root cause, you're never going to fix that disease or that issue that you really have. And that's what we do. We went go, so many people, and I, I know this because when my family sold their business, um, they, they lost everything. It was a multi-million dollar company, and that's because they operated from a mindset of fear and scarcity rather than that of abundance. And so we deal with a lot of business owners to overcome those fears, overcome those root problems that they grew up with their belief system that prevents them to be even more scalable, more successful. And so I just wanted to share that with you as an additional piece that uh, is kind of what allows us to really get over those barriers so business owners can truly achieve all that's really been important to them. Sure. Great. Thank you. Uh, I just want to thank Richard and his team. I think they've done a great job today. Nobody said anything about the folks' Thanks. family office. So thank you and, and all your team. And I'm not going to get between anyone in the bar at this point. So, <laughs> Nick, anything else? So uh, just so you guys know, next Friday we're in Chicago. Lots of people join to come to an investor summit. But the Influence uh, workshop is ne next Friday in Chicago. And I really think the workshops are just as valuable, if not much more than this, because you'll walk away with practical changes, plans, 30 different ideas on how you could be working with investors differently and closing more deals. It's going to make every day you spend working on deals and investor more effective. And we really do truly believe that. And we think we can transform how you work with investors if you come to three or four of those workshops over the next 18 months. I hope you can come to at least one of either type of event uh, each quarter going forward. If you can't make it, maybe send a team member. If you've been to a certain workshop, maybe send a team member to that workshop instead of yourself so you get more value out of the membership. 
Don't forget to log in for recorded events, streamed events. Talk to Jennifer if you haven't done a walkthrough of the portal. She'll show you all the different things included in your membership. And finally, make sure you submit your materials once every three months. We'll do a three to five page analysis of them and give you plenty of ideas on what we would uh, tweak or change. Maybe you won't agree with 5% or 50% of them, but there'll be an idea or two you can run with just from that. I don't know anyone else that does that even for $1,000. And again, that's free with your membership. And it allows me to get to know you because now I've read everything that you're showing to the marketplace. And when you come up and shake your hand and we only get to talk for one or two minutes, I already have a frame of reference of who you are and happy to keep you, keep you in mind to see if I could be helpful to you in some other way. So let's give our discussion panelists a round of applause and we'll see you next Friday.